Yeah, how fun is that? Yeah, we celebrate what's going on at our Fort Lupton location, and uh, Alex, our pastoral resident, is doing an amazing job up there uh, leading that campus. And then you saw in the tub with the students is Toby and Shelly, and those are two of our youth leaders up at Fort Lupton, and they are doing an amazing job of bringing the hope of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus into students' life. And so to watch those four kids, those four students get baptized is just so, so cool, uh, and that we get to celebrate that here at Thornton. And so uh, we are pumped to be able to do that. We are all about life change and seeing Jesus change lives uh, here at Crossroads Church. And so that's just a small taste of what actually is going up and happening at Fort Lupton. And so uh, with all that said, I want to welcome you here uh, to Thornton today, as well as those of you joining us online, wherever you may be. If you haven't or we haven't had the privilege of meeting, my name is Matt Manning, and I'm the senior pastor uh, here at Crossroads Church. And today we are in week three of our series that we're calling Do Justice. Now, when we put this series together a year or so ago, I do not think that we had any idea how timely and important this series would be. And the reason that I say that is because if you're paying attention to cultural commentators of our day, they're calling this period that we're now in a cultural uh, convulsion. Every 60 years or so, if you look at U.S. history, every 60 years or so, our culture enters into a convulsion where it feels like the roots and the foundation of our culture is just being shaken turbulently. It's a turbulent, turbulent time. And as we look at the season that we're in, we have to realize that this current convulsion that we're in is not just all pandemic related. That certainly there is the pandemic going on, but even above that and beyond that is an economic collapse and then rebound, not for everybody, but certainly for many people. We have internal political discord happening everywhere, right? I mean, just think in the last uh, year, we've seen two impeachments and a national election. Never before in U.S. history has that happened. That we have racial tension, that we have distribution lines throughout the country interrupted. We have cultural disruption everywhere, and we can feel it, can't we? It's shocking, isn't it? And so if you're online, you can go ahead and hit a heart. If you're in-house, I want you to raise your hand. But how many of you were born during the 1960s? How many of you are alive? Let me put it that way. How many of you are alive during 1960? Yeah, you can raise your hands high and proud. Yeah, yeah you can give them a, a hand. Yeah. yeah, we're multi-generational here. And so the reason that I ask that is because many of you who were alive in the 1960s might be able to understand a little bit of what I'm about to explain because maybe you experienced it. The last time that we experienced a cultural convulsion was in the 1960s and particularly in 1968. That in 1968, the country uh, was more divided than even it is now. In fact, it was one of the most turbulent times in our nation's history. In 1968, the protests were much grander in scale. We had the Vietnam War protests happening. We had civil rights protests happening. And with each protest, seemingly it escalated in violence. In fact, in Chicago, Mayor Daley famously told his police force just to go out and to bash heads in, and they did. In April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Two months later, Bobby Kennedy faced the same fates. A lot of people forget that in 1968, there was also a global pandemic. It was called the Hong Kong flu. The name was not as controversial as it would have been today. But in 1968, you had a global pandemic. You had cultural division. You had the Vietnam War. People were talking about America coming apart at its seams. And there was this universal cry for justice. And now in 2021, 
here we are in another cultural convulsion, feeling the same things. And according to the great cultural commentator, Ed Stetzer, he says this, that we've entered into a season of tumult and turbulence that will probably last us the next three or four years. As North America questions their institutions, as we try to sort out all these things not too dissimilar from what we saw in 1968. That as people, we're in a season where we're going to have to build up greater reservoirs of resilience as we face higher and higher conflict that is ongoing in our lives. That particularly as, as believers, we're gonna have to grow accustomed to this conflict being in our ministries, in our church, in our families, our communities, even in our businesses. And for many, that might not sound like very good news, but it is the factual truth. And in light of the cultural uh, convulsion, particularly when it comes to social issues, there is some good news for those of us who are believers. See, when we look at the social issues and the social injustices facing today, facing ourselves in 2021, they mainly revolve around four issues, that being race, poverty, sex, and life. And the good news for those of us who call ourselves believers is as we look back on history, particularly to the early church, we see that it was these four issues of race, poverty, sex, and life, and the way that the early church handled them that ultimately separated them from the culture and spurred the gospel of Jesus from a little Middle Eastern country to the Roman Empire and eventually to the entire world. Eventually to the entire world. It was their steadfast faithfulness in these issues that separated them from the culture. See, when we look at the early church, the early church was first and foremost sold out for racial justice. They were sold out for racial justice. They were deeply concerned about the poor and the marginalized. They were committed to sex being designed by God. For the early church, they were for life. They were for speaking up for the powerless and the vulnerable in society. And in a time and in a culture that was just as confused about justice as we are today, it was the early church and their steadfast faithfulness in these areas of justice that spurred the gospel of Jesus forward. And for us, this is significant. And for us, this is good news because what it means for us is that we do not have to wait for this cultural convulsion to stop. We don't have to wait for culture to settle down to have an impact in our worlds that we can lean in and take our cues from the early church as we begin to understand and answer this question. In a world that is crying out for justice, and let's be honest, for many, we can't even define really what justice is. But in a world that's crying out for justice, how do we as the church speak to the issues of social injustice that are happening in our backyards, in our communities, in our cities, and all around the world. How do we do it in such a way that we're not just throwing gasoline on the fire that's already raging in our culture? And so this is what this series, Do Justice, has been all about. And so just as a short recap, if you were here week one, we looked at what justice is all about. And we discovered that justice is really grounded, foundationally grounded in this understanding that every single one of us is created in the image of God. 
that every single person that you have seen, will see, are seen currently is made in the image of God. And that when we understand that all people are made in the image of God, that we're all image bearers, then we come to understand when it comes to justice in particular, that any neglect shown toward people, any neglect shown towards image bearer is not just a lack of mercy or compassion, but actually, but actually the very assault on justice. It's a violation of justice. It's an attack against the very nature of who God is and who he created us to be. That was week one. Then that led us to week two, where Pastor Chris last week talked about racial prejudice. And as we walked through racial prejudice last week, we discovered that when it comes to racism, at its very root, that racism is the active exclusion and marginalization of people, of image bearers, based solely on race. That when it comes to our lives, when we purposely marginalize people, when we purposely exclude people based solely on their race, that is not, biblically speaking, a lack of mercy. That is a violation of justice. And so that leads us to week three, where today we're talking about poverty. We're talking about poverty. Now, the issue of poverty is a big deal in our world, and it's a big deal in Scripture. In fact, as we look to the Scriptures, poverty is mentioned in the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. It's everywhere, and it is powerful. And so we're going to kind of take a broad view of poverty in the scriptures today, and we're going to start in the New Testament. And so if you have your Bibles and you want to open them up or open up a cell phone with an app on it, you can turn to James chapter 2. That's where we're going to start out today. Now, the passage that we're going to look at in James is one of the most famous passages of anywhere in the scripture. It's one of the most famous passages in the Bible. In fact, if you did not grow up in church, if you would go, Matt, I'm not really a church goer you probably still know this passage. That's how famous this passage is. Now, just so that we're all on the same page, that when it comes to James, the author of this book, we need to know that this is the brother of Jesus. This is James, the brother of Jesus. And what we see in James's life that's quite remarkable is that he goes from a skeptical unbeliever, someone who he thought that, that he looked at his brother Jesus and he thought that Jesus was crazy. Like this guy has lost his mind to eventually becoming the most influential pastor in the early church. And we look at his life and we have to ask the question, like what happened to James? Why the transformation from skeptical unbeliever who thought his brother was crazy to the most influential pastor in the early church? Like what happened? And what happened was the resurrection of his brother. That upon the resurrection and the gospel that Jesus spoke, it changed everything for James to where he becomes the most influential pastor as he serves the congregation in Jerusalem. In fact, he's so influential that as the church is getting started, the early church is organizing itself, it's getting started, that people would look to James to lead them in that space. That as tough decisions came up, the giants of the faith that we know, like Paul and Peter and Barnabas, that they would look to James to help them make the decisions. That James became the most influential pastor in the early church. He is the brother of Jesus. He sits down years later, he writes this letter to the church, and famously he pens these words in chapter 2, verse 17. So also by faith, or faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is 
dead. Now, anybody who's been a part of church, who's heard not just one, but multiple sermons on this passage, knows that what James is saying to those of us who are saved is that our salvation, our, our, our being saved is by faith alone. That our salvation is by faith alone, but our faith, our faith does not remain alone. That faith without action behind it is not true saving faith. That faith without movement doesn't exist. That faith without works is dead. And let's just be absolutely clear, that is absolutely right. And so, in trying to be good Christians, and wanting to apply this verse well, we look at our lives and we say, we're gonna, we're gonna make sure that our faith is full with works. And so we're gonna sit down and, and we're gonna read the Bible and I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna go to church and, and I'm gonna treat my spouse kindly and I'm gonna love my kids. All good things, all good applications of this verse. But the truth of the matter is, those are all secondary applications to what James is saying. See, as many times as, as we've read this verse, as many times as we've seen this church in, uh, this verse in church and in sermons, what we constantly fail to take notice while reading this verse is the actual context in which James is writing. That when James is describing works, he tells us what those works look like in the letter. I mean, just listen to some of these. James 1.27, so just a few verses before, he writes this, that religion that is pure and undefiled before God. You want to know what that looks like? Here it is. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world's. We look at chapter 2, verse 2, and, and here's what James writes. Um, that's 4, but we'll go to 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and time, uh, fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and says, you sit here in a good place while you, the poor man, you stand over there, you sit down by my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? What about James 2, 15 and 16, the two verses that precede the famous one? It writes this, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for their body, what good is that? Your faith without works is dead. See, what do all these verses have in common? What do they have in common? Every single one of these verses is talking about the poor, talking about the marginalized in society. I mean, the look at the, the works that James is talking about. He says, these are the works of saving faith. They look like this. They're, they're caring for widows and orphans, who, which by the way, meant nothing to society, that they were burdens economically on society, that they were the most vulnerable. James says, your works looks like having concern for them showing the poor honor and treating them with equality, even in the midst of the wealthy. He says, that's what works looks like. He goes, when it comes to, to caring for people, that you care for their material needs with food and clothing, not just their spiritual needs, but their material needs as well. That's what work of saving faith looks like. That point blank, James says to us that those who say that they have faith in Jesus and yet close their hearts to the poor, are either fools 
or liars. And for them, James says in chapter 2, verse 13, that judgment will be without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. That mercy triumphs over judgment. See, the mercy that James is speaking about here, to define mercy, the Greek word that he uses here for mercy, means to show concern or help for the poor. To show strong concern or help for the poor. In other words, the most influential pastor of the early church, the brother of Jesus, says to us that you will not find mercy, concern, help, on your day of judgment, if you do not show mercy, concern, and help to the poor that are in your life. Listen, we have to understand this. When James is talking about verse 17, this famous word that that faith without works is dead, here's what he's saying. That when it comes to your faith, when it comes to your faith life and true saving faith, when it comes to showing mercy to the poor. That is not the reason that God approves you or accepts you. That God does not approve you because you've shown mercy to the poor. Make sure you're clear on that. But what James is saying is that in showing mercy, doing justice for the poor is the unavoidable sign that Jesus has impacted your life, that you have faith in Jesus and that grace has impacted your hearts. Now the We look at that and we go, James, how can you make that conclusion? Like, how can you say that? And the reason that he can say that is because he's looked back on how God has treated the impoverished, how God has treated the poor throughout the history of the scriptures. That we can go back to a place like Isaiah 58. In Isaiah 58, we have this great moment where the nation of Israel is totally confused because they think they're doing everything right. Like they're living their lives and they're like, man, we're doing right. We're doing well before God. And we, if you're honest, if we're honest, and we read Isaiah 58, and we read the beginning of Isaiah 58, we look at it, we go, man, like Israel, you're doing good. Like, well done. You, you guys are making it. Like, you are an example of what it looks like to walk with God. I mean, you read the beginning of Isaiah 58, and you find that Israel is delighting in God, that they're praying, that they're seeking God for discernments, that they're fasting regularly to God. And we look at the list and we go, man, Israel, you got it going on. Good job, Israel, well done. And God looks at Isaiah, the alpha prophet of the Old Testament. And he says, you go to my people and you tell them, these are what their transgressions are. In other words, they ain't doing everything right. And we go, God, God, are you sure? Because the list looks pretty good. Prayer, fasting, delighting, seeking discernment, like that prayer looks pretty good. And God goes, yeah, I'm sure. Isaiah, tell them their sins, verse six. Isn't this not the fast that I choose for you? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke, verse seven. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, that God through the prophet Isaiah basically says 
that if you think you have a relationship going on with me and you don't have a relationship going on with the poor and the oppressed in this world, then you are mistaken. If you do not have a relationship with the poor and the oppressed, you don't really have a relationship with me. We see this time and time again in the scriptures. We look to Solomon, who is the wisest man in all of the world. One day he sits down and he writes a letter to his sons. We call it Proverbs. And in Proverbs 14.31, he says this. I want you to, to read the last few words. It says, whoever oppresses a poor man, what? Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. Just let that sink in for a moment. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his savior. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. Listen, what's clear from scripture, from the most influential pastor in the early church, the brother of Jesus, to the alpha prophet of the Old Testament, to the wisest man who ever lived, is that God identifies with people who are at the bottom of society. That God identifies with the poor and the oppressed. And I don't think that I could actually communicate how radical this idea was in this time and in this culture. See, in every other culture, in every other religion, that they believed that the gods were in bed with the kings and the rulers. The rich, the wealthy, the elites must be living right because look at everything that they have. Look at how the gods bless them. And yet this is what made the God of the Bible, Yahweh, different from every other religion, from every other culture. The God of the Bible was not in bed with the powerful. He judged the powerful. He judged the wealthy. He judged the elites. That the God of the Bible stands with the people who are at the bottom. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. That God says over and over again, if you think you have a relationship with me and are not coming alongside the poor, then you are mistaken because that's where I identify. And just in case we need any more proof of this, we can look no further than to Jesus, our Savior, the Messiah, that when he came to this earth, he came as poor. I mean, just think about it. In his birth, he's... He's placed in a feeding trough for a manger. That, that when he's taken to the temple to be dedicated, his, his mom brings with her two pigeons, the offering of the poor. That his entire adult life, he wanders around homeless. He says that fox have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to rest his head. We see Jesus get to the end of his ministry and, and the mark of his end of his ministry is him riding in to Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He eats his last meal in a borrowed room and after his death, his body is laid in a borrowed grave. I mean, just think about the context of that for your own life. That the only way for Jesus, the only way for Jesus to get you out of your spiritual poverty and into spiritual riches was to get out of his eternal riches and into material poverty. Let me just say that again. The only way for Jesus 
The only way for Jesus to get you out of your spiritual poverty and into spiritual riches was for him to step out of his, out of his eternal riches and into material poverty. It was Jesus in this world who came into this world and said, I who should be receiving glory and honor will go to the cross and receive condemnation so that you who should receive condemnation will get all of the glory and the honor. That Jesus fulfilled the justice that you and I deserved and in turn offered us mercy. That this is the gospel and it's beautiful. See, in our understanding of the gospel, it doesn't just impact where we go when we die, but it has everything to do in the life in which we live. It impacts every way that I see the social issues of justice and poverty in this world. See, if you simply give to the poor out of moral duty, if you simply are, are generous to the poor because God says so, then you will always ask the question, how much do I have to give? Like, where's the line? When's enough enough? And let's just be honest, if we're asking those questions, we're simply doing it out of self-righteousness, aren't we? That is just an exercise in self-righteousness. But if our basis for engaging the poor is our radical understanding of the gospel, then this becomes our pattern of life. That the biblical default is that all sinners, all sinners are saved by grace. And that when we look at the poor of this world, that in some way we should feel as if we are looking into a mirror, why? Because when we see the poverty in this world, we realize the sacredness of God that has been placed in every single one of us. And if an image bearer is in poverty, it should remind us of the poverty that we once experienced spiritually before we knew Jesus. And it should remind us of the length and the sacrifice that Jesus made in order that we become spiritually rich, that his sacrifice paved the way for ours. The only, only, only way that we can be generous towards the poor is with a radical understanding of the gospel. And if you've never experienced the power of the gospel, then my encouragement to you would be to pull out your cell phone right now and to simply text the word Jesus to 720-513-1933. That we would love to have that conversation with you. And so wrapping all this up, what do we do? That's the question, right? What do we do? It's one thing to go about helping the poor. It's another thing to go about it wisely, isn't it? That one of the greatest books that had impact on my life is a small book called When Helping Hurts. And it's written by a guy named Steve Corbet and Brian Fittick. And if you've never read it, it's worth your time to sit down. When Helping Hurts, that's the name of the book. And um, what it goes through is this understanding that sometimes when we come alongside the poor, we actually make it worse for them than better. And we see this in many of our political ideologies of, of the day. As Western thinkers, when it comes to poverty, we almost always think towards the government, don't we? Like if we just had, had better tax reform or, or more social policies or education system or more technology or name your list, then everything would be better when it comes to poverty. And yet we know, don't we? We know that that's not the answer in and of itself that the answer is the church stepping up to be the church. And so throughout history, when it comes to the church, there's three levels of ministry in which the church has operated in when it comes to, to showing mercy or compassion towards the poor. We would say it like this, relief, development, and reform. 
So let me tell you how we go about that here at Crossroads Church. When it comes to relief, relief happens in what we call benevolence. That we have a fund here at Crossroads that people give to every month above and beyond their, their general tithe to this church. And all of that money, 100% of that money goes to help people in need. People who need help with rent, with food, helping with their bills, their electricity, whatever it is, we're able to help them. And the person who oversees all that is the most compassionate man I think that I've ever met. His name is Rick Gaskell. He oversees all of our benevolence. And when someone walks in, in need of benevolence, not only are they met with physical need, but he also takes the time to make sure their spiritual needs are met. That's what we talk about when we talk about relief. When it comes to development, what we're talking about is, is helping a person become self-sufficient in healthy ways. That our dream in repurposing the North Glen location, our building at North Glen, is to achieve this kind of dream where it becomes the Crossroads Community Center. And the center will serve as our missional hub of Crossroads to empower people through a more stable future through the transformational experience of Jesus focusing on human flourishing when it comes to spiritual, social, and economic realities by partnering with like-minded organizations. That's our commitment when it comes to developments. Now, most of you, if you've been around Crossroads, you've probably heard of those two things. So when it comes to reform, what is it that we're talking about? Well, when we talk about reform, what we're talking about is moving beyond like the relief of, of kind of helping in the immediate. We're moving even beyond simply looking at it and going, how do we help an individual become self-sufficient? When we talk about reform, we're talking about transforming entire communities. How do we impact an entire community? Now, the reality is, is that we would love to change the entire world, wouldn't we? But we have to realize that we're a church of about 3,500 people in a world that is 7.6 billion, where 50% of the world's population lives on less than $1.25 a day. That's the definition of poverty. 50% of our world lives in that space. Poverty is a huge problem. And as a church, we can sit back and we can be totally paralyzed, can't we, by the enormity of the problem. Yet we're choosing to do for one what we wish we could do for all. And so I'm super excited because today we're launching a brand new initiative here at Crossroads in partnership with Compassion International. That Trevor, Pastor Trevor and our missions team has worked diligently over the last couple of months to come into this partnership with Compassion, where we have adopted an entire village in uh, Mazantenango, Guatemala. Now, for those of you who, who are like, where's that at? Let me kind of help you geographically. You know where Mexico is, just south, right? Head all the way through Mexico, and the next country you'll run into is Guatemala. And if you go to the southwest corner of Guatemala, then that's where you'll find Mazatenango. And there is a small village, and in that village and around that village, people live on $1.25 a day. They are the very definition of poor. And we've decided that we're going to invest in an entire village, that we're going to join together as a community of faith to impact an entire community. And listen, we have the chance to totally eradicate poverty in this town. For $38 a month, you can sponsor a child and you can do for one what you wish you could do for all, that you have, a, you have an opportunity to lift a child completely out of poverty today. The reality is, as people of faith, I don't have to motivate you to want to do good in this arena. Like all of us want to help, the question oftentimes comes, who can we trust? Isn't it? That's the question, who do we trust? Well, we've done our research, and the reason that we chose Compassion International 
is because they are Christ-centered, church-based, and child-focused. They operate with the highest of financial integrity. In fact, you, anybody can go online and you can read their financial audit. They're Jesus at the core and everything they do for the child is to, meant to reflect God's heart. That every child gets a chance to learn about Jesus, to respond to the gospel, to develop a lifelong relationship with God, while at the same time getting their innermost needs met. Things like food, clean water, medical care, a mentor to walk beside them, education. In fact, I'm gonna show you our hand a little bit and what our plan is for the future. That one of the reasons that we chose Guatemala is because we wanted to be able to get there. That when this pandemic stuff is behind us, we thought, you know what would be totally cool is to be able to actually visit the kids that we're helping lift out of poverty. Like that would just be amazing. And so if this pandemic ever ends and we get through and borders open and we can travel again to countries like Guatemala, then you will have the opportunity to go and to visit the very child that you help lift out of poverty. But even more so than that, in this village and in the surrounding villages, they're in need of a local church. And so as we develop this partnership over the next year or so, our intention is to raise enough money to launch a local church in that area. See, part of our, vi our vision is to launch a couple of churches. And we just think that it would be totally awesome that one of those churches that would be planted is in the village of Montezango. So here's the challenge today. We have 125 kids in the lobby. And we would love to see every single one of them sponsored by a family at Crossroads. And I wouldn't ask you to do something that I don't do myself. And so meet Estrella. This is our compassion child. And if you adopt or sponsor a child today, you'll get a brochure like this that'll speak to who your child is, where they're living, what it's like to live there. And you'll start building a relationship with your child. On the back, it says, one of the things that I pray God would do in Estrella's life, we chose Estrella specifically because she's around the age of my daughter. She's about eight years old, nine years old. And uh, so one of the things that I asked my daughter is, what are you praying for when it comes to Estrella? And she says, I'm praying that God would allow her to go to school and meet a ton of new friends, which if you know my daughter, that second part is really important. And so uh, she's praying with the faith of a child that Estrella would get her education and that she would have people in her life that could come alongside her and be her friends. Today as we leave, if God's moving you to sponsor a child, we have an army of volunteers out there. Most of them are compassion sponsors of children. Many of them have traveled around the world visiting their children. They can tell you the stories. But as you leave, you'll have the chance to, to pick out a child today. Also in the lobbies, we've partnered with a local Guatemalan restaurant. There's these pastries out there that are better than donuts. There's coffee that'll make your hair stand on end from Guatemala. We're having a party today. Online, we haven't forgotten about you. In the chat box is a link for you to go to kids who's been specifically picked out for our online uh, tenders. And so you can go there today and be a part of this as well. Last thing that I wanna say, that today as we've walked through this, we've seen that God has called us to make an impact on poverty. The, the, the job that we have before us is enormous. Even though the world has gotten better, still 50% live under poverty. And today as a church, as a faith community, we have a chance to eliminate poverty in one place in the world. The question is, will we do it? Before we go to communion, will you pray with me? Father, Lord, we come to you and Lord, in light of poverty, we realize how spiritually impoverished we really are. 
God, we are people who have sinned before you, our good and great God, that we've decided to be our own gods. And with that, the consequences of sin and despair have, have entered into our lives. And God, only because you sent your son, only because you sent your son to be materially poor in this world, stepping out of the glories of heaven, do we have any opportunity to be spiritually rich and to be your children, to call ourselves your children? And so God, I pray that, Lord, that that reality in our life would impact the way that we see the world, that it would impact the way that we see the enormous uh, challenge of poverty. Lord, that image bearers of yours, Lord, are living in situations and in circumstances that would break our own hearts if it was our children. So God, I'm thankful for people like Compassion International. Lord, there's many organizations who are doing this around the world. But Lord, Compassion is, is very upfront that they do it for you. And so Lord, we're just thrilled as a church to be able to jump in and to, to be a part of what they have going on. Lord, do amazing things through us in light of this. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. So every week, we take communion together. And today we're reminded of our spiritual poverty and the sacrifice that was made in order for us to be rich. In that last supper in that borrowed room, Jesus and his disciples sat and Jesus broke the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. He then took the cup and explained how his blood would be poured out for the payment of our sins. This is how we know that we have life, that we are children of God living in the internal riches of our good father, that we will forever reign with him. And so we remember today by eating the bread together and by drinking the cup. As we continue in worship, we're gonna sing. The set today is amazing. If you need prayer, uh, I'd invite you to go to the back. We have people to pray for you online. You can hit the prayer button, but I'm gonna ask everybody here to stand as we sing together.